politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to the great second American Revolution here on Monday, April 20th. Daniel Horowitz back in the house for a full new week here. All hands on deck. We need all Minutemen to hold their posts and hold their ground and see nothing. No, this is not a bloody war, and hopefully, we pretty God, it won't turn into one. This is an intellectual war, a spiritual war, but one that will shape our future just as much, if not more, than the Great Revolution during the 1770s. Many of you have been messaging me. Obviously, we've called for a Paul Revere project, a Minutemen movement. We had a Tea Party movement. I think we need a Minutemen movement. That it was this weekend, this time, 245 years ago, when our revolution began. It was at this time, see, July 1776 is when the declaration was signed, the war began in earnest. But it was really in 1775 that the re- rebellion began. The Redcoats are coming, Paul Revere's ride on April 18th. Captain John Parker, who commanded his Minutemen near Boston, on April 19th, he gave the famous order, stand your ground, don't fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. It was when Daniel Webster said they poured out their generous blood like water before they knew whether it would fertilize the land of freedom or of bondage. And uh, Patrick Henry, I don't have the quote offhand, but something like, if this is what treason is, we need more of it. The rebellion's beginning. No longer are we just one voice in the wilderness. Thank God people are protesting across the country. The truth is coming out that this entire thing from day one was a farce. Not the deaths and the virus. But the entire strategy behind it was not driven by science. As we now know from Stanford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Yale, Israeli researchers, Taiwanese researchers, German, Swedish researchers all over. Numerous, numerous reports. Oxford, where they say this thing was really around for so long. The death rate is much lower. So many more people have had it. Lockdown is counterintuitive. We now know that the government did this. State governments, federal government, with Trump evidently having no control over his own government. Because they wanted to implement what they could never implement in 240 years. The perfect amalgamation of anarchy and tyranny. Locking up Americans, peaceful Americans, arresting everyone of the Bill of Rights, while letting out As of last week, 16,000 criminals, a lot more by now, letting out illegal aliens rather than just simply removing them from the country so they don't spread the virus nor spread their crime. This is not a just government. And it's even worse because, you see, King George, during his time, we didn't know of freedom. We didn't know about freedom. Now we do. Now we do. You know... Sam Adams said in his letter to James Warren, November 4th, 
1775, those very precarious months. Again, today is the day. It was on April 20th, 1775, that the siege of Boston began. But he said, No people will tamely surrender their liberties, nor can any be easily subdued, when knowledge is diffused and virtue is preserved. On the contrary, when people are universally ignorant and debauched in their manners, they will sink under their own weight without the aid of foreign invaders. That's really the crossroads at which we stand right here, right now. It's an information war. We need our our Paul Revere's. You know, it's not going to be a three-hour ride, however long it was, you know, around midnight, Lexington and Concord. It's going to be a number of weeks and months. And it's painfully slow. But just like the tyranny doesn't happen instantly and the shots aren't fired around the world like they were in one second, they're therefore engendering a wake-up call immediately. This is all gradual. Because the problem is that the type of tyranny we have nowadays is very subtle. It's very subtle. It's a tyranny resulting from global corruption of Western elites over the course of a half a century or so. As Noah Webster said, if the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupted. Laws will be made, not for the public good so much as for selfish or local purposes. Corrupt or incompetent men will be appointed to execute the laws. The public revenues will be squandered on unworthy men, and the rights of the citizen will be violated or disregarded. John Witherspoon, writing in the Dominion of Providence over the Passions of Men, 1776. Nothing is more certain than that a general profligacy and corruption of manners make a people ripe for destruction. A good form of government may hold the rotten materials together for some time, but beyond a certain pitch, even the best constitution will be ineffectual and slavery must ensue. And that's the question. Do we have the values to mount any sort of revolt? And that's the thing. Right now, it is very, very subtle over the years, but it's getting less subtle. They have Chinese drones spying on us to make sure we're keeping our distance. When our own military is concerned that the feedback goes back to China, the very source of this virus, they bring in more foreign workers. They bring in more Afghani refugees. All while we are under house arrest. Now they're going after First Amendment. I'm sure many of you have seen that Facebook has announced that they are working at government's instruction, whatever that means, to shut down crime online, a.k.a. organizing protests, while meanwhile criminals are released. My own home state governor, Larry Hogan, may he rot in hell, he said, now we're getting tough, right? We're getting very tough. He said that, where is this? Where is his quote? We are no longer asking or suggesting that Marylanders stay at home. We are directing them to do so. He's announcing up to a year in prison for those who don't wear masks. But at the same time, he issued an executive order letting go 500 criminal alien, uh, 500 uh, criminals. I'm sure he'd let go illegal aliens too, but the federal judges are doing it for him. Now let me tell you something. 
if you are in prison in Maryland, it takes a lot of talent. The Maryland prison population, because of all the jailbreak, has decreased by 30%. Not as its rate as the population general population grows, but in raw numbers, by 30% over the past decade. Nobody serves time anymore. All these people ravaging neighborhoods near where I live, outside of Baltimore, inside of Baltimore, they have robbery, larceny, theft, auto theft, six felonies within a half a year. They don't serve a day in jail. So if you're in there, you're pretty bad. And these are the people he's releasing. You know, in some respects, I guess, if you rob a bank, you're always wearing a mask. So I guess they'll get a medal from Larry Hogan. Again, this is not a disagreement. This is not emanating from some sort of disagreement. I want to make that very clear. I want to make that these are not transient causes for which Jefferson in the Declaration advised against a revolt. Jefferson wrote in a summary view of the rights of British America, 1774, the year before, quote, single acts of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of a day, but a series of oppressions begun at a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of ministers to plainly prove a deliberate systematical plan of reducing us to slavery. There is something very, very dark we called out six, seven weeks ago when we said, wait a minute. What you're saying, you have to shelter in place, but the prisoners have to be let out. The legal aliens have to be let out. Abortion clinics have to be open. Marijuana shops have to be open. But all sorts of First Amendment rights to protest, to prayer, small businesses that have very little or no crowds have to cease. And then mass transit, which is scientifically the the biggest contributor to spreading a virus, is kept open. We knew from day one this thing was BS. Now, of course, they latch on to a truth that people are dying and we do have a virus. But like every truth that is manipulated, it's really 100% false. Because what we're doing has nothing to do with that. It would not prevent those deaths. And in fact, it's more likely that if you would compare, again, there's three stages. There's doing nothing, there's being smart and doing some distancing, and then there's lockdown. It's very likely that doing lockdown as opposed to the, the proper mode you're actually killing more people from the virus, much less from the terrible devastation of, of our healthcare all across the board. I mean, even um, even the Wall Street Journal now has an article, an opinion, sending hospitals into bankruptcy. I'm going to be crafting later today a list of indictments against our federal government, just like Jefferson did in the Declaration. It's time we get to them out. And that's what I need from you. I know some of you might roll your eyes and think this is insignificant. Like, Daniel, I want the revolution. Well, we live in different times with a, with a media that is much more powerful, with a culture that is very different, and we got to work with what we have. So we need to win an intellectual battle. And I'm telling you, the worst that could happen is when they don't get pushback. You know, I'm not the biggest figure around, but I have almost 100,000 followers on Twitter. I'm pa- banging away at Governor Larry Hogan His press secretary is now responding. I send it to people like Levin and Beck. And we're getting this stuff around. 
So that's why it's important you guys go to Harwood Citizen Sanctuary, become one of our state Paul Revere's, join the Miniman Militia. And again, it's going to manifest itself differently today. It's an information war, which is why they're seeking everything they can to stifle the peaceful assembly and even assembly virtually on Facebook. So email our team, and we'll put you together if you're several people in a state to be our you know, Maryland team, our Pennsylvania team, and report on what you're seeing. Because a lot of this was going on for weeks and no one was even calling them out for it. The minute we shed some light on it, they start scattering like a bunch of bugs. You notice we've already had that success a couple of times. They want this done in the dark. We need sunlight. We need to expose the bastards. That's the first step. And then obviously we need to disseminate wide the information. You know, I don't know, some of you have seen this guy, and and I'm trying to remember what his name is, this Israeli researcher. Well, there's actually a few of them that have been putting out stuff. But, um, you know, because they've been yelping about their country's draconian lockdown, which is now actually being eased. But this guy had, uh, his name was Weiss, I believe, his last name. Last name, I'm forgetting the first name. But he put up two articles on median.com. Nobody has done this where he went state by state, country by country, and demonstrated that the duration and severity of the lockdown did not make a difference. There was no correlation. It was a scattershot on a diagram. It was very well done. Okay, it was just the facts. No opinion, just the facts. The first article was taken down already on Medium at 2.5 million views before it was taken down very quickly. What does that tell you? Meaning you would think, here's the whole thing that never made sense from day one, and I've been saying this from day one. Even if you firmly believed in Fauci and Burks's way of thinking and their pseudoscience, you would also have to recognize that you would want to do everything you can to avoid this result. It's like, well, Daniel, well, you're biased too because you, you know, you're just like you're saying they're biased because they want these policy outcomes. Well, you want your policy outcomes. Well, gee, we should all want my policy outcomes. Whether you're liberal or conservative, I mean, we should all agree we don't want mass prisoners being released, right? Dangerous people. We don't want Americans locked up. We don't want businesses shut down. We don't want bankruptcy. We don't want. Even if you're more of a liberal on spending, you certainly don't want this degree of debt. I think no no sane person would say they want this. So certainly you should investigate and overturn every stone to make sure that there really is nothing else we can do and that this is what we have to do. Yet when there's so much countervailing evidence, and I'm not saying from Liberty University or Hillsdale, I'm saying from liberal Ivy League bastions that are saying, look, you know, we've studied medical research and epidemiology our entire lifetimes top uh, researchers at University of Bonn, and and again, Oxford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, Yale, they're saying, wait a minute, this is not adding up. I mean, this doesn't work. This might prolong it. This might make it worse. Um, This is not the right strategy. Antibody tests show this has been around for a while. You would think Congress, look, if they're too cowardly to meet in person, they would hold virtual, online hearings, have like, committee hearings like you'll have testimony you're the guy from Yale a guy from this maybe an international guy from Germany 
and 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 let let's discuss this. Let's hear it out. State legislatures would do the same thing. I'm all for 24, 36 hours, like a governor saying, look, we're gonna have we're gonna all die. Here's what you need to do. But we're seven weeks into this. And now the evidence is mounting that this is all crap, and we're all seeing the insidious nature of what they're doing and what they're not doing. We're all seeing, I mean, it's clear as day that they have sunk their teeth into this. They don't want to get out of it because they've never enjoyed themselves this much. Everything a leftist ever wanted to do, they're getting for free. So it's not science driving it. It's all politics. And it's getting disgusting. It's getting disgusting. It's getting scary. It's beyond scary. We need to rise up. Rise up. But we need... We need our John Hancocks, Paul Revere's, Patrick Henry's. We need it right now. This is getting way out of hand. We need our Lexington and Concord moment. So that's what we need to keep in in mind 245 years later. This is a despotism of our own making. John Dickinson was another important founder. He wrote this again, I think it was 1774. It was called The New Essay by the Pennsylvania Farmer. Honor, justice, and humanity call upon us to hold and to transmit to our posterity that liberty which we received from our ancestors. It is not our duty to leave wealth to our children, but it is our duty to leave liberty to them. No infamy, iniquity, or cruelty can exceed our own if we, born and educated in a country of freedom, entitled to its blessings and knowing their value. Pusillanimously deserting the post assigned us by divine providence, surrender succeeding generations to a condition of wretchedness from which no human efforts in all probability will be sufficient to extricate them. The experience of all states mournfully demonstrating to us that when arbitrary power has been established over them, even the wisest and bravest nations that ever flourished have in a few years degenerated into abject and wretched vassals. See, if you look subtly from our founders, if you if you take all their writings, I don't think they were ever scared of a president becoming a king, like, you know, just redoing pre-enlightenment uh, you know, European-style tyranny. They were scared of exactly what happened. They called that shot numerous times. That we would have so much freedom, liberty, prosperity, and good things in America, ele- we would have an elective despotism, as, as Madison and Jefferson always warned about, where the people would just, the, the politicians would just be able to buy people off. Hey, you got a couple thousand dollars in your direct deposit, your stimulus checks. And just keep printing money. Now you have this stupid uh, payroll paycheck, whatever program, out of that stupid stimulus that's out of money and broken. So now they're just gonna be, they're, they're planning on Wednesday passing another five hundred billion to throw at it. It's all free money. And you look at all the Republicans. That's all they want to do. Yes, yes, more money. Now Cassidy, rep- allegedly Republican senator from Louisiana, is working with Bob Menendez of New Jersey. 
to give Hogan and Cuomo their $500 billion state bailout. Nothing about, hey, as Republicans, maybe we should have the discussion like I had with Andy Biggs on Friday about the entire premise of this, the science behind it, the strategy behind it, the virus itself, then the tyranny, to discuss the tyranny. Governors can't do this stuff. There's something more fundamental about than, than, than the stupid money. We'll talk about that later. And obviously there's things that should be done. Deregulation, tax cuts. Again, if we're going to bankrupt ourselves, actually invest in something. All of our anti-China policies. An immigration moratorium, as Jeff Sessions is calling for. By the way, Senator Sessions, if all goes well, will be on the show tomorrow. If you remember, there's a period of time we were doing video shows and posting on the Conservative Review YouTube page. So go there tomorrow, not for today's episode, but for Tuesday's episode. We will hopefully be um, posting it as in video form as well as the typical audio podcast. So Jeff Sessions will be joining me. Let me know what you want to discuss with him. Obviously, there's a lot, but we're mainly going to talk about the immigration and jailbreak aspects of coronavirus and you know, juxtaposed to the tyranny against everyday Americans and real rights being taken out. But as I warned about in my book, folks, when you have a government that for so long bastardizes rights by creating super rights for citizens and citizen plus super rights for foreign nationals and illegal aliens, you inevitably wind up infringing upon real, foundational, natural rights of all citizens, equally guaranteed to us by natural law and affirmed in the Bill of Rights and double affirmed in the 14th Amendment. It's the first lesson that anyone in Hebrew school, Jewish school, um, learns, really one of the first lessons of the Bible, that he who adds onto God's word winds up subtracting. So God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree. And Eve told the the snake in the garden, well, we can't touch it. Well, the snake went and pushed her and said, well, look, nothing happened to you. You didn't die, so you could eat it too. That was a mistake because really God never said you can't touch it, so you can't eat it. It's a similar thing. We're so busy for a hundred years creating, oh, if if government looks at me meanly the wrong way, it violates this right, or you don't give me enough welfare, it violates this right. Oh, if I don't get, you know, all these positive privileges, it's a violation of my liberty. Now those very same people will not recognize the bare bones, life, liberty, and property, right to earn any sort of living, right to leave your home, right to go to a friend, right to peacefully assemble, right to not be spied on. You talk about Griswold and, 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 a, and a privacy right. <laughs> oh my gosh, between the medical surveillance, the drone surveillance, the everything, the heat mapping of the cell phones. I mean, there is nothing, nothing there. And I'm sick of it. And if you hear any so-called conservative tell you this crap, call them out on it. That somehow states could do what they want. It's not the role of the federal government to get involved. No. This is one area where it is the role of the federal government to get involved. The one thing that the 14th Amendment actually did, we don't do. 
So for years, we created all these BS rights under the equal protection and due process clauses of the Constitution, the, the you know, Section 2 instead of, instead of 1. Okay? When really, as I noted in my book, if you look at the congressional debate on it, they were just terms of art. They didn't really mean much. And they said they didn't mean much. It just meant equal. Everyone is equal in the eyes of God with the bare bones minimum. And due process means process, not substantive rights. There's no new rights, no new principles. James F. Wilson, from a congressman from Iowa, that's what he said at the time on the House floor, 1867. There was nothing new. As Clarence Thomas has warned about so many times, and then he really codified in his very scholarly concurrence in Heller in 2010, the very same people that create insane rights under due process and equal protection that go and basically say, I have a right to unequal rights, like affirmative action. It's all about race and favored people and protected groups when it's when of course it wasn't doing that. They don't they fail to recognize the first clause, which is privileges and immunities. Privileges and immunities. Some of you have already seen me do this on Twitter, but I'm going to repeat it here. The words are so simple. No state, didn't mean like state as in a country, it meant literally a state, shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It is that simple. It is that simple. The Bill of Rights applies to the states. That's what that part of the 14th Amendment, Privileges and Immunities Clause, was trying to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay? That's what it tried to do. Now, obviously the 14th Amendment was adopted as part of our Constitution, but lest you think I'm not being a, like a true originalist, like pre-14th Amendment, people forget, and it drives me nuts, states never had the right to violate natural law. Okay? They never did. They never did. Of course not. States have a lot more power to do things that are almost somewhat nanny state that the federal government can't do, but there's a limit. And there always was, even before the 14th Amendment. People forget Article 4. A lot of people know the first three articles of the Constitution. There's Article 4, Section 2. right? So this was 1789. Okay, this is not 1867. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Notice the same language. That's all the 14th Amendment was doing. It was reaffirming, as Lincoln said... Now, Lincoln was shot by then, but what Lincoln was trying to do, it was trying to harmonize the Constitution with the Declaration of Independence and ensure that the Declaration of Independence was codified through our Constitution against the states fully, uh, you know, as it relates to everyone and, and most prominently, obviously, 
where they weren't applying it mainly against freed black slaves. That's all it was doing. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, I think the point is, and if you look at the congressional debate at the time, there was a little bit of ambiguity of how, to what extent privileges and immunities meant. Meaning, before 1867, it was a question, how much of the Bill of Rights applied to the states? Because clearly not every provision did. Most of what's in there is natural law, natural rights, that Madison felt you, you didn't even need a Bill of Rights, and he actually was concerned of even having a Bill of Rights. But then there are some provisions, like, for example, the Establishment Clause, not to establish a, a national religion, which is you know not to be mixed up with freedom to practice your religion, just a state. Right? That clearly did not apply to the states, and, and you know Clarence Thomas argues, and I agree with him, it still doesn't apply to the states technically, even after the 14th Amendment. Um, not that we want a state-sanctioned religion, but technically that part really is on the federal government. But it was unclear. But you look at Senator Jacob Howard, one of the primary uh, drafters of the 14th Amendment, and he said very clearly that the object was, he says, um, let me find, uh, find the quote here. He said that where is this? Darn, I don't even have it here. I put it out on Twitter, and uh, and I missed it here. But the point is, he, he says that it was designed to go on the states. It was meant as an enforcement mechanism against the state. That was the, the main thing was that it wasn't clear if every part of the Bill of Rights applied to the states yet. Now, let me say, what governments are doing now, states couldn't do in 1789, much less after 1867. But I'm just telling you, academically, and if you want to have a good read, it's a very long read, extremely scholarly, one of the most landmark things ever written by Clarence Thomas, his 2010 concurrence on in Heller, where he explains this. But... It was really to clear up two things. Number one, to just the extent that really all of the Bill of Rights is included in the privileges and immunities of Article 4, Section 2 against the states. And number two, to really give an enforcement mechanism for Congress. Okay, so states aren't allowed to do it. Now, what are you going to do about it? Okay, so that was the idea. John Bingham, who was the primary drafter of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, he was a congressman. He said on the House floor February 1866, it was to arm the Congress of the United States by the consent of the people of the United States with the power to enforce the Bill of Rights as it stands in the Constitution today. It hath that extent no more. A couple of months later, May 22nd um, or 23rd, is when the Senate accepted the amendment uh, draft language from the House. Senator Jacob Howard, who was the driving um, uh, floor manager uh, in the Senate, he was the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman. He said, quote, the great object, meaning of this privileges and immunities clause, was to, quote, restrain the power of the states and compel them at all times to respect these great fundamental guarantees. They were always there, but we had to force them. So there were two things. Number one is obviously in section two where it has this whole scheme that if they don't allow blacks to vote. Remember, it didn't give blacks the right to vote. That was the 15th Amendment. The 14th Amendment 
kind of said, hey, you're a state. You could say they can't vote, but here's what we're going to do to you if you don't. And like I've said, like I've told you before, well, what do you mean you could? You can't. Well, no, voting is a positive privilege. It's very close to a negative right, but it's not negative. It's positive. As Jacob Howard and John Bingman both actually said, and it's going to be in my article today. But unalienable rights, no. Unalienable rights, life, liberty, property, my right to earn a living, my, my right to move out of my house, to just walk around, to not have a mask over my face. That you need due process of a court of law individually to take those rights. That that was always secured against the states. But anyway, it was to say they had a whole scheme that, hey, we're going to cut your census number so you'll lose representation. But then there's Section 5 of the 14th Amendment that gives Congress the power to enforce. Why are Republicans in Congress not yelping about this? They control the Senate. They're in the minority in the House. Where, where's Lindsey Graham, the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, holding hearings on this? Instead, they're going to reward these states with $500 billion. Unbelievable. But I'm just going to tell you, the next time you hear this crap of like, a fake cut the whatever they want, Daniel. The feds need to stay out. Trump's not a king. No, governors aren't king. Now, Trump's not a king either. But Trump and Congress more particularly have a responsibility to enforce. In other words, states never had the right to do this. What, you think our founders fought at Lexington and Concord? What, so you don't have a king or a federal government doing it, but a state government could lock you up? Are you kidding me? No. A state could have more say in governing different policies than the feds would. But you can't take away natural law. And again, I say this all the time. Judge Timothy Farrar, who was Daniel Webster's um, uh, law partner, he wrote the first constitutional treatise of post-14th Amendment in 1867, right after it was ratified. It was published in Boston, 1867. The states are recognized as governments, and when their own con- con- uh, constitutions permit, may do as they please. But in explaining the 14th Amendment, he said the following. This is what it means. Provided they do not interfere with the constitutional laws of the United States or with the civil or natural rights of the people recognized thereby and held in conformity to them. The right of every person to life, liberty, and property, to keep and bear arms, to the writ of habeas corpus, to trial by jury. Right? And, and, um, and he says all these things are recognized by and held under the Constitution of the United States and cannot be infringed by individuals or even by the government itself. And this is why I say all the time that the federal government has a right to march in in these states and end these anti-carry laws, the anti-gun laws. I'm sorry, states cannot do that. Everything the federal courts are doing to the states illegitimately on immigration enforcement, on abortion, on gay marriage, on transgenderism, on all sorts of election voting anomalies, all this stuff, they, they actually should be doing this now on the corona fascism and on the... Um, you know, the, the the gun rights infringement. That is the role of the federal government. Again, it was always banned under the Constitution. The primary purpose of the 14th Amendment was to empower the federal government to fight back against it. I'm not saying anything new. The left says this all the time, except they wrongly put it into equal protection and due process instead of privileges and immunities, and therefore they create a whole new constitution out of that and super rights 
that infringe upon all of our rights rather than protecting the baseline privileges and immunities as understood in 1789. In other words, it wasn't creating new rights in 1867. What it was doing was affirming the privileges and immunities as understood in 1789 and enforcing them against the states and certainly ensuring that blacks you know, were entitled to that, not affirmative action, not new rights, but the bare bones, life, liberty, and property, and giving the federal government some mechanisms to fight back against states doing that. So if you hear like these people say, I'm a constitutional conservative, uh, the president, look, I agree with that. I don't like what the states are doing, and he, he can't talk like that. No, the governors can't talk like that. Cut the nonsense out. So that's with that. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the liberty aspect here. But I just wanted to go over some of the virus stuff. I was trying to get on the show today um, some sort of researcher, one of the two researchers from Stanford. But really, that and several other observations and news stories that came out are a game changer. They announced that they sampled 3,330 Santa Clara County residents of all demographics. They did it like you would do a proper scientific public opinion poll. And they found, you know, if you use the margin of error and the proper sampling, anywhere between 2.49% and 4.16% of the people in this county of 1.9 million already had the antibodies in them. In other words, that would mean that there are anywhere from 50 to 85 times more people infected than the government official account. So here's the deal. The numerator, we know, the number of people who died is about 70 in Santa Clara County. It's the denominator we didn't know. Now they're saying it's 50 to 85 times larger. Would mean that rather than like 18, 17, 1800 people having it, Really, 48,000 to 81,000 have it in that county as of April 1st. And that if that is the case, that means that the infection fatality rate, the IFR, is 0.12 to 0.2%. So it's either at the flu level or at most twice the level of the flu, one-fifth of 1%, but not this 3-4% that our government has been working off of. Now, we're seeing this everywhere. See, the question is, what about more densely populated areas? Right? More densely populated areas than Santa Clara County, which most of it is more wide open. Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's very um, dense. It's the second most densely populated city in Massachusetts. There was a study conducted by Massachusetts General Hospital Physicians They also did around the same time an antibody study. Almost one-third of the sample had it. So that could explain New York City, right? I don't think any of us would say that New York City, it's 2 to 4%. It's likely a lot higher. Now, I think no matter what, you are going to get a higher case fatality rate in New York. I mean, it's not going to be the insane rate that we're seeing in the official numbers, but it is going to be higher. And, you know, some of that, the numbers are inflated there. The deaths are inflated. Some of it, there is something wrong there. 
We have to really get to the bottom of that. But that's the anomaly. Similar thing, University of Bonn tested antibodies in Ganglet, Germany, that's near the Netherlands. They found 14% of the residents have already been infected. If you made that the average in America, do you know what that would mean? 50 million people have already had it. 50 million people. Do you know what that is? 50 million people? That's an insane number. I mean, that's like the annual flu. So, um, so that's what it is here. And, you know, what, 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 what are we saying here? You know, 40,000 deaths so far. So if you divide that by 50 million, well, that's 0. 0.00. No, 0. 0.0008. Okay. That's, um, yeah. I mean, that is, that's very low. Again, we don't know. But this is the question. Why is government spending time randomly testing, randomly con- trace, con- they're not talking about contact tracing five months into this thing? After tens of millions have it already, there's nothing to contact trace. That's what you do when you have five people with it and you want to stop it. That's when it helps to do quarantine. They should be doing antibody testing. Why does it take private institutions to do this? Why isn't the government do it? And if they are privately doing it, why aren't they putting this out publicly? Why do we know nothing more from our government seven weeks later into this? Why? I think we know the answer. But you find this all over the place. All over. Navy ships are another very good example of like a densely populated thing, but also where you have full control scientifically, of scientific control, because you could define a full population and test them all. So they tested everyone on board the Navy ship, uh, the aircraft carrier Theodore uh, Roosevelt. There's 4,800 people on it. They found 600 individuals had it. That's 12.5%. So again, that might give you, uh, you know, you know, whereas the um, Stanford study in Santa Clara was four percent had it, but again, this is more analogous to a densely populated area ship. Twelve point five percent had it, tested positively. But here's the deal: roughly sixty percent, they say, were asymptomatic, and there was just one fatality so far out of six hundred. Again, it it says the same story. That so many more people have it and didn't know it. But the good news is that means the fatality rate is really so much lower. So it's two things. Number one is the fatality rate doesn't justify what we're doing. And number two, even if it did, what we're doing doesn't help because you can't stop the spread of something that already is spread. And instead, you're just locking down everyone who had it, including healthy and young people who very few will die. And you're spreading it even more. They had similar results aboard the Charles de Gaulle French aircraft carrier, according to the New York Times, out of 2,300 sailors on board, 1,081 tested positive. Right? That's almost 50%. And 51%, 51% were symptomatic. That means 49% were not. So similar, you know, a little less than the. U.S. ship, which 60% were asymptomatic, so here 49% were. 
Just 24 were hospitalized and one in intensive care. Now, these are going to be younger people. Another remarkable, remarkable result came from the Boston Homeless Shelter, where 146 of 397, okay, 146 of 397, what is that, you know, um, 40% or so tested positive, not a single one, not a single one of those 146 had any symptoms, they didn't know without testing. That's a very different story. That's a very different story than what catalyzed this seven weeks ago. We need to reassess everything. And again, we knew this. We, we were talking about this seven weeks ago. I mean, all this is just proving what was pretty obvious to us from the get-go. Am I a scientist? No. But I study public policy and I watch the development of events very carefully. And particularly, I watch immigration and travel trends. And I knew that if at a minimum this started in Wuhan in November 17th, which now is one study that seems to indicate it could have been September. So I was like, dude, your goose is cooked. When you had 750,000 traveling from there, your goose is cooked by, by December. So it was obvious to us that this has, was going on for a long time. And if it was going on for a long time and they're saying it's this contagious, that means that tens of millions have it. And if that's the case, and we're not seeing everyone dead, that means the case fatality is... Because they, they want to have it both ways. Oh my gosh, the case fatality is so high. It's crazy. Everyone's going to die. And imagine if more people get it. But then they use that same percentage for a larger denominator. They, they, they copy and paste it when you can't, you can't do that. Right? Because if you're going to say, hey, this number of people died from this number of cases... Well, imagine if we had more ca- cases, then more people die. But no, we, we now have more cases. We know there were more cases, and we have the same death numbers. So, you know, overall, again, it's hard to know. So It's probably going to range a little bit. Some places it's going to be like the flu, one-tenth of a percent. Maybe some places it's going to be a half a percent. Maybe in New York, it winds up being one or two percent. And then among... Those, let's say, under 55 or so, it's going to be remarkably low. Of course, you know, you're going to have examples of people dying. I was talking to my wife about this, you know, God forbid, you, 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 know, you have an infant, and we're talking about, like, you know, she's like, yeah, you know, got to keep her safe. And I, I, was, I, I was laughing. I said, look, of all people, she's the, the best off, a newborn. You know, there's a lot of things where newborns, you know, are the most vulnerable, but with this, they're, they're actually not. Oh, well, I, you know, my, my wife is like, well, I read somewhere someone died. It's like, well, dude, yeah, someone dies of everything, but an infant is so much more likely to die from SIDS and God knows what else before they die of this. You always find a case. But we're being lied to. This entire thing is a lie. The science is a lie. The jailbreak is a lie. The releasing of, of illegal aliens is a lie. The tyranny, the spying, the surveillance, the denuding us of our rights, our property, our way of earning a living, our national pride, destroying hospitals. What are we going to do? So that's the thing. We need to win the information war first. 
give this over to your congressman, your county county council members, city council members, call your county executive, your state legislatures, find find any way to contact your governor. Organize, keep organizing rallies. It's working. Commensurate with their reaction, you know what you're doing is being effective. It's slow. It's not as fast as I want it to be. But the momentum is shifting. Shifting in our direction. Let's pick up that mantle of liberty from Patrick Henry, Sam Adams, John Adams, John Hancock, Paul Revere, John Dickerson. Let's take this to the next level, folks. Because if we do it right now, God hope we will avoid that bloodshed that did take place in the, in, the, in the first revolution. And this will be a bloodless revolution to restore the promise and sacrifice of the original bloodshed in our first great revolution. Tomorrow we'll have Jeff Sessions on the show. Email me your questions, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at Conservative. Sign up for Horowitz Citizen, Citizen Sanctuary on Facebook to be one of our uh, Minutemen. And folks, let that shot be heard around the world. And let's roll. <laughs>